hey everyone, I'm so excited to come out to the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. It's going to be a blast. Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee. I'm going to be giving a presentation called Making the Case Against Cancel Culture, where I talk about how we write comedy and how Christians need to use art and writing and all of that wonderful stuff to fight against cancel culture and how we have to take a bold stand for the truth using the creative talents that God has given us. It's going to be a great time, and I'm so excited to come out and see everybody, meet everybody, and, uh, and talk a little bit about how we write satire and use that to communicate God's truth. You can meet and hear Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. Making the Case, June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. I think the new epic is founded on the volatile and non-transferable platform of human emotion. It's purely visceral, feelings and sentiment, which are themselves inscrutable. The problem with CRT is that it has the same problem that the white nationalists do, just define everybody by their race and not who they are as an individual. Where you have the white nationalists doing this and you have the critical race theorists doing this, they're just doing it in different directions. But given the challenges that black families face specifically, I don't think it's too much to ask for the leading civil rights organizations to talk more about the importance of the black family than they do about the importance of Planned Parenthood's agenda. And the only way he can justly forgive is by paying the price for those sins himself. And so this is the way humanity can find meaning and purpose and know right from wrong. And that truth's only found within scripture. Young Lutherans ages four and six Learn the evening prayer from listening to Issues Etc. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you will bless me. The Asbury University Revival was, well, it was not an outlier if you understand its theological roots, but the media obviously did not know what to do with it, and apparently a lot of charismatic and Pentecostal Christians didn't know what to do with it either. They assumed that it was one of their revivals. Some of them showed up, actually several of them showed up, and found out it wasn't. Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's This Week in Pop Christianity. We'll talk about charismatic reaction to the Asbury University Revival with Pastor Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith. Then Dr. Stephen Parks continues our series responding to Roman Catholic proof texts, answering the question, did St. Augustine teach that the Church decides doctrine? Pastor Chris Rosebro is pastor of Consvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, and he's creator and host of the YouTube channel, Fighting for the Faith. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Todd. Why were so many trying to jump on the Asbury bandwagon when this revival was at its peak? Good question, because in the charismatic and we'll call it narismatic, that's I think a good way to talk about folks in the NAR, there has been for decades a lot of talk about revival, and since there hasn't been a notable revival in the United States really since Todd Bentley's so-called Lakeland revival. The charismatic churches and those in the NAR, they have been prophesying for a long time that uh, revival was going to be breaking out. And kind of embarrassingly, they made prophecies early on in 2020 that revival was going to be breaking out that year. And they had scheduled stadium-sized revivals 
to take place in that year. And then we all got locked down because of COVID. So one of the things I was hearing as a common theme among charismatics as we got closer to the end of, of this past year, 2022, was again that call, that that claim that, the, that we were on the cusp of revival. And it's part of their end time schema. And so when revival broke out, we'll kind of say it in those terms, but this is loosely defined, at Asbury University a couple weeks back, the charismatics and those in the NAR were quick to jump on it. And many notable figures within that, that wider charismatic NAR movement, they dropped everything they were doing and traveled to, to Asbury to be there, to be a part of it, to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit and things like this. Well, I know at least one of them was disappointed. You mentioned Todd Bentley. Mm-hmm. I believe, at least according to people I've talked with, he showed up, but he wasn't allowed to hijack the thing. That is correct. So when we talk about the Asbury revival, we're going to have to make a couple of important distinctions. And that is is that when we talk about the initial portion of it in the immediate aftermath of the sermon that apparently kind of kicked it off among the students, there's there's one thing. And then there's this other thing that has it. You know, the Asbury revival has become its own thing on the charismatic and NAR social media, and as a result of it, you have to make some careful distinctions. And I would, I have to praise the uh, the faculty at Asbury for being very, very careful and being decisive that this thing wouldn't be hijacked. I I had uh, heard a report that uh, Ken Copeland's people showed up at Asbury University, and uh, and they were not permitted to actually enter into the building. And uh, when Todd Bentley showed up, he was not only not given the microphone or given the stage, he was only allowed to kind of participate by sitting in the audience. And you can tell by his uh, photographs that he put on Instagram and on Facebook that uh, he, you know, he was up in the upper balcony, kind of in one of the back corners, and can only write about his so-called experience that he had there. So when we talk about this, it's important to note that the focus of this interview today on on your program is really about the charismatic movement in the NAR and Pentecostals, what their reaction has been to this, which is its own emphasis, and it doesn't necessarily reflect the views or the theology of the students at Asbury or the faculty. For those who may have missed it or may have only glancingly noted it as uh, it did eventually become a national news story. What happened at Asbury University? So a couple of weeks ago, there was a, you know, a standard required chapel service. This is a, this is a Christian institution. They require their students to attend chapel three times a week. And uh, there was a fellow, you know, who gave what I would consider a, a mediocre-ish type sermon. It was very heavy on the law. The gospel didn't get preached in it. And then after that particular chapel service, the, the worship team of the students kind of stayed behind and kept that chapel going, and it just didn't end. So their claim was early on that this really led to them having introspection, a feeling of a need to repent, looking at their own life. Themes that were common that, that we're, we, we recognize as Lutherans that kind of go with Lent, but uh, they were experiencing this, but without the gospel being preached. And so this led to students feeling that they needed to repent of their sins. And we need to note 
that Asbury University is Wesleyan in its theology. And uh, although I was never Wesleyan, I was a Nazarene, which is a form of Wesleyan holiness. So I'm very familiar with the theology of this. And when you are confronted with your sins, you do feel lament, you do feel guilt, you feel shame. And so it is very common in churches that are influenced by Wesley's theology, this would include Methodism, Wesleyanism, and the Nazarene Church, that you go up to the altar in order to do business with God, to show God that you are repenting, to cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness. This is a common theme within Wesleyan churches. And um, and I, I would say there's probably some aspects of that that were going on early on, but if we're going to talk about revival, we've got a big problem, and that is is that the Bible itself doesn't really define revival in the ways that people are talking about the Asbury revival, either from the Wesleyan point of view or specifically from the charismatic point of view. So there's a lot of confusion about this, and that as a result of it, there's a lot of division within the body of Christ, and the dividing line is, quote, is this a real revival? To which I always say, if you're going to ask me that question, how are you defining the term? And that's really part of the problem here, is that we're looking at an experience, we're looking at an event, and we're trying to interpret it outside of biblical categories. And that's a big problem with this and every other revival. So two things before we get to some of the actualities you have for us. This was not a Pentecostal or a charismatic revival in the sense that we're used to seeing them in those circles. This was a different animal, and they were actually calling it an outpouring rather than a revival. Mm -hmm. And it's part and parcel of the history of the holiness movement that they have a history of revivalism. Correct. In fact, within Wesleyanism, it, it's, it is not uncommon to actually have planned revivals. However, this one was not planned. This one definitely seemed to be a spontaneous response to the law preaching of the sermon that occurred in that particular chapel service that sparked it. But the way the charismatics have all jumped on, and I would note every notable, like, heretical charismatic that I follow, they are all, like, going wall to wall talking about the Asbury revival, but really co-opting it, and in a sense, in social media, taking it over and twisting it in the event that's taking place there, twisting it to their own understanding of revival. What are we going to hear first? Okay, first, I think it's good to kind of start and listen to one of the early reports. This one's a, a news report out of WKYT. And we're going to listen specifically for the female student that they interview and how she is interpreting what is happening there. For over 100 hours, people have filled the rows of Hughes Auditorium at Asbury University to worship. It's referred to now as a revival, but began on Wednesday spontaneously when students felt the urge to stay after the mandatory chapel service. We uh, are unique because three times a week we stop everything that we're doing uh, and gather for a chapel service together. This is just a service that uh, hasn't ended. Since Wednesday, the phenomenon has spread all throughout social media, with churches and other campuses bringing busloads of people to the chapel. Lloyd Nineber had never heard of Asbury before, but after seeing the social media posts, he drove seven hours from North Carolina to see the revival in Wilmore for himself. With what's going on in the world and all the darkness, 
and this was like light, like the uh, you know a light coming through, and so I wanted to see what was going on, see God moving. A revival like this is not uncommon for the university. Back in 1970, a similar revival lasted for two weeks. Hundreds of people from Kentucky, Indiana, and Michigan attended a testimony service on the campus of Asbury College in Wilmore. But since then, there has not been an act of worship of this length. Students and community members continue to find peace in dwelling and worshiping in the chapel and say they don't see signs of stopping anytime soon. Like we're just sitting with him and like it's just deeply gentle and like deeply loving um, and it's just a glimpse of what I think heaven will, will be like. Allison Perfader and many other students and faculty encourage people to come out to Asbury and see the revival for themselves. If it's for 20 minutes, if it's for a couple hours, if it's for the week, like you can't lose anything, you know, but you can gain like everything. In Wilmore, Hallie DeVore, WKYT. So, Chris, what do you make of the early media coverage of it? So the early media coverage really captured at least the emphasis that occurred in the early days of the revival. It's important to note that Asbury University has brought the revival to a conclusion due to the fact that they do not have the infrastructure to be able to deal with the tens of thousands of people who are traveling across the country to be a part of this. And so it's it's become a disruptive thing, and they don't have the road infrastructure or the bathroom infrastructure to deal with all of these people who are showing up to experience it. But early on, you'll note that the emphasis was that if you show up, then the expectation is is that somehow this was some kind of special manifestation of God the Holy Spirit that imparted to the people who were there a sense of love, a sense of peace, a sense of heaven on earth. In other words, the major emphasis was on the thing that you were supposed to feel as you were participating or on campus or you know in that particular venue for the revival itself. And then that feeling of peace, that feeling of God's love and kindness was supposed to be the impetus then that would lead people to repent of their sins and things like this. And so we've got a big theological problem here with that particular emphasis because this is completely based upon subjectivity and feelings and things that cannot be validated or verified apart from the subject who is experiencing the subjective experience. And worse than that, we have no actual biblical precedent for such a thing. You'll note that within the history of Israel, there are several notable revivals. I would think of the revival that took place under King Hezekiah. You could talk about the revival that took place under Josiah. And then you can talk about the revival that took place at the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. And it's recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah. And in each and every instance of revival, kind of the way these punctiliar events look like in Scripture, it was always the Bible that was front and center as the driving force. It was the Scripture and a rediscovery of God's Word or a deeper look at its meaning that then led people to introspectively look at their own life 
And to see the disconnect of their ancestors, see the disconnect from God's word and the rebellion against God's word that they've participated in, but in equal measure then, not only do you get the law, but you also get the gospel. And here's where we have to make a careful definition what repentance is. And you'll note that our confessions and our dogmatics texts all take great pains to recognize that true repentance consists of two elements. It consists of true contrition and sorrow for sin, and at the same time, confidence in God's mercy to forgive and pardon sins for the sake of Christ. And when you look across like the stories of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you can take a look at the so-called repentance of King Saul when he was confronted by his sin. He never truly acknowledged that he was guilty and always blamed others for his sin, and that wasn't true repentance. David, when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet for his sin of adultery and murder, he flat out owned his sin and said, I have sinned against Yahweh, and as a result of it, he received an absolution, and And then when you read Psalm 51, you can clearly see both law and gospel, true sorrow for his sin and confidence in the mercies of God to forgive him of his sins were both present. And in order for repentance to be true, both law and gospel have to be in play. And so we've got a big problem because what's in the driving seat of the Asbury Revival is the claim, the unverifiable claim that God the Holy Spirit is specially present and that that is the thing that is driving repentance rather than the Word of God and the Gospel, which both have to be preached. The law and the Gospel have to be preached in order for there to be true repentance. Pastor Chris Roseborough of Fighting for the Faith is our guest. We're talking about charismatic reaction to the Asbury University revival. When we come back, Michael Brown's definition of revival. When defending a biblical doctrine or practice, have you ever been accused of not caring for the lost? I've written a column in the latest Issues Etc. journal titled Playing the Mission Card. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Jeremy Lamont recounts his slow and sometimes painful path out of Mormonism to the Lutheran Confession. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. A voice in the wilderness of American evangelicalism. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. 
At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Thanks to Russell and Margaret in San Antonio, Texas, Jeff and Corinne in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Anne in Spokane Valley, Washington, for registering in the last 24 hours for the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The premier conference for Christian laity is Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molling Hemingway, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, Luther Church, Missouri Synod President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Making the Case also includes worship services, book signings, and meals. On-campus dorm options are available. Find out more by giving us a call, 618-223-8385, or at issuesetc.org. Making the Case, June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. It's This Week in Pop Christianity. We're talking about charismatic reaction to the Asbury University revival. Pastor Chris Rosebro is our guest. Chris, what's next? So Michael Brown, who was a part of the Brownsville revival at that Assemblies of God church in Florida in the late 90s, he was on the leadership team there for many years while that so-called revival was going on. He has decided to weigh in regarding this, and we need to carefully listen to his definition and note that this isn't a definition based upon actual biblical texts. Many people have different definitions of revival. We all kind of describe the same phenomenon, but I'm going to give you my working definition of revival that I've used for probably the last 25, 30 years. Revival is a season of unusual divine visitation, resulting in deep repentance, supernatural renewal, and sweeping reformation in the church, along with the radical conversion of sinners in the world, often producing moral, social, and even economic change in the local or national communities. This is something that I can speak to you about with some degree of, of authority. In, in other words, this is something that I've had lots of life experience in over a period of years. This is something that I've studied intensely over the years. This is something that I've gotten to interact with in terms of other leaders with experience as well and historians over the years. So this is not just theoretical. This is not just abstract. There are other areas where if I address them, they're theoretical because they're not part of my life experience or I haven't studied them with intensity. This is something I've both experienced over a period of years in my life in several different settings. This is something that I'm a firsthand witness to. This is something that I have studied with some focus over the years. So I believe I can be of real help here when we discuss revival. How do you discern whether something's really revival or not? When does it reach that level that it is clearly a season of unusual divine visitation that, that will be marked, that will be memorable, that will bear lasting fruit? How do we know? We understand that God moves differently through history. We understand that, that, that God moves differently in different cultures. We understand that every move of God will have its, its own unique character. Just like when God spoke through the prophets, even though it was Koamara denied, this is what the Lord has said. 
Even though he spoke directly through the prophets, it was Neum Adonai, utterance of the Lord, or Pi Adonai Diber, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Even though that was the case, the fact is the words came out differently through each prophet. The words sounded different. The vocabulary was different because the, the light was shining through different refracted windows, you could say, and different shaded windows, and therefore had the unique flavor and character that God wanted through the unique person. So we understand that there are differences, and yet there are similarities. There are things that happen in Scripture. There are things that happen through history. And, and when you have been around with this for a while, just like areas where you have experience, you can you can spot things more easily, right? What was he saying there? You'll note that the basic thrust of what he said was, number one, his definition of revival. And notice it was his definition of revival. He wasn't opening a biblical text. He wasn't reading out for us a portion of scripture that defines revival. What he was doing was saying, my definition of revival is, it's an intense experience of God's divine visitation. In other words, it's a belief that God has miraculously decided to basically set up shop and visit a particular locale which then leads to deep repentance and reformation and things like this. But here's the thing. That's Michael Brown's definition. And how is he defining it? Not based on a biblical text. He's defining it based upon his personal experiences. And since he has personal experiences like this, that makes him an expert in the field of revival. And so we can trust him to give us a proper definition Yet he cannot point to a single biblical text that defines such a thing or even would lead us to expect such a thing. You have one more for us? Who do we get here from? So next up, we're going to be listening to uh, CBN's coverage of the revival very early on and in their interview with an evangelist from Minneapolis, Minnesota, by the name of Nick Hall, who traveled from Minneapolis down to Kentucky to be part of it. And you can hear his definition of revival and what he experienced. Yeah, you know, uh, one of my kind of friends and mentors would often say that revival is God's arrival. And so there's these moments in history where God uh, just manifests. It's almost like Jesus sets up a chair in a room and people just encounter his presence in a very tangible way. Um, it's happened throughout the history of the church. Uh, it's happened throughout American history. There's been several revivals and great awakenings. And so a revival is, a, is an encounter with God for the bride it's it's like uh it's a reckoning it's a call to holiness it's humility uh it's it's always marked by prayer it's always marked by repentance uh it's always marked by just a humble posture of god revealing himself and people repenting of sin and that's what's happening here i mean literally people crying out loud uh repenting of sins and then the whole audience repeating you know the blood of jesus forgives you uh, being on the altar last night and today, people just weeping, people crying out to God, people getting right with God. And again, like God always starts with his people before he goes outside, right? So like this is about uh, purification and holiness, but the, the, the goal of all of it, the goal of every encounter with Jesus is that it doesn't stay with us, but it goes to people that need him, that are lost and hurting. And so that's you know, that's the prayer here. There's commissioning every night. 
Um, people are going, people are coming from places and then bringing the fire back. You mentioned Lee. I've gotten reports from, you know, the Midwest already. I've gotten reports of kids coming from Boston, bringing it back to Boston, people at Cedarville in Ohio. Um, you know, so it's spreading. God's moving. What is this idea, Chris? And we've had it with the Toronto blessing and all of the various things that have happened over the last three or four decades. And they go back farther than that, that this is somehow like the pandemic. If you go, you can catch it, and then you can take it and communicate it back to your local community. That is a common belief regarding revival, that you can go to it, you can sit under this divine visitation of the Holy Spirit. God has showed up and set up shop and is there present in a way that is not going to happen at your local Lutheran church. And then you can then be commissioned, catch the fire, and then take it, the best way I can describe it, this is a legitimately a man-made doctrine based upon their, quote, experiences, which begs the question, which spirit is behind this? Is it the Holy Spirit or a demonic spirit? Because nowhere in Scripture are we led to believe that this can happen. And this doctrine itself, this belief that this is how the Holy Spirit operates and that you can catch this and then be commissioned and carry it elsewhere, that's nowhere in Scripture. And you'll note there's nothing tangible to hang on to except for these subjective feelings. Whereas what we see in the book of Acts is that when the apostles go and preach the gospel to places who have never heard the gospel before, through the preaching of the apostolic message of their eyewitness accounts of Christ's vicarious death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, of which they are the eyewitnesses of it, we can see people brought to true repentance. They're confronted with their sin. They, are, they hear Christ and him crucified for their sins, placarded to them and called to repent, God the Holy Spirit then works. I've heard men, uh, theologians, talk about the real work of the Holy Spirit. He's the PR guy for Jesus. The Holy Spirit works in convicting people of their sin, regenerating them, giving them faith. And then what happens after that is that people then are dedicated to the apostolic preaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers together. And what, what happened is not something that you can't define, but something that you can clearly define that is connected to the clear Word of God. As Paul says in Romans, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In this man-made theology based upon human experiences, faith comes by having a subjective encounter with uh, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit sets up shop in particular places, and then you can take it and carry it other other places. But that's purely a man-made doctrine. It's as biblical as the doctrine that you can pray to dead saints and the doctrine of purgatory. It's as biblical as those doctrines, and neither one of them are biblical. So, with about 30 seconds here, the Holy Spirit is at work, and far more often than revivalists of any stripe would guess, where do we find the Holy Spirit truly at work doing what you rightly described as his work? Where Christ promises to be, where two or more are gathered. So we'll note that Christ is present 
at every single church service that begins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and people have gathered around the Word of God and the sacraments, Christ promises to be there, and the Holy Spirit is present to convict us of our sin and comfort us of the forgiveness and mercy that is with Christ. And I would note that I don't think you can get any more of an encounter with God than what you receive when you have the Lord's Supper and you feast on the very body and blood of Christ given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so you'll note that all of this is tangibly connected to elements that we can we can grab onto, uh, the element of the preached word, bread and wine, body and blood, Christ is present, the Holy Spirit is present, and I would say that it, based upon the biblical definition of revival, every single divine service in a faithful congregation is a revival in and of itself, and God is present there to convict us, to comfort us, and to assure us, and to feed us, and to help us grow in our faith. Pastor Chris Rosebro is pastor of Consfinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. He's creator and host of the YouTube channel, Fighting for the Faith. We'll post a link to Fighting for the Faith on the Talk on Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Chris, thanks. Thank you, Todd. When we come back, our series Responding to Roman Catholic Proof Text continues with Dr. Stephen Parks of Concordia University, Irvine, California. Did St. Augustine teach that the church decides on doctrine? Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns, Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting. LCMS.org slash stewardship. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and lay people worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy promotes confessional Lutheran theology through conferences, scholarly exchanges, and publications like Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up for their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. I like to think of the deaconess vocation as driven by two things, the love of Christ and the needs of our neighbor. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. James Busher, Director of Deaconess Studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, on the vocation of deaconess. First, the deaconess is moved by the love of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Yet I think we can also see the profound needs around us, broken families, loneliness, despair. Deaconesses help the church to become a true family that manifests the love of Christ in our love for one another, and especially for those in need. 
For more information on the Deaconess Studies program at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, visit ctsfw.edu or call Concordia Theological Seminary at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155.